Matthew chapter 12. Tonight we're going to look at verse 22 down through verse 37. Prior to beginning chapter 12, going back a ways, we saw Jesus teach the Sermon on the Mount. And we saw there that the people were astonished at his teachings. They'd never heard anybody teach like this. And we've watched Jesus perform many miracles. We've seen lots of them, including cleansing of the, of the leper, healing of the centurion's servant. Peter's mother-in-law was healed. He even brought a, a dead girl back to life. We've heard him make some bold statements so far in Matthew. Jesus told a lame man, a paralyzed man, that his sins were forgiven. And then he healed him. We heard him refer to himself as the bridegroom. We also heard him refer to himself as the son of man. Jesus has had great compassion on the people that he's coming into contact with. He's healing them. He's teaching them. He's ministering to them. But the religious leaders, the Pharisees, they seem to be crouching down and waiting to pounce on Jesus at every moment that they can. They're trying to set traps for him. They're trying to catch him doing something wrong. They want to, they want to nail him to the cross, literally, and they will someday. You see, they believe Jesus was guilty of blasphemy. They believed that. and They certainly couldn't understand why or how the Messiah, if he was that, would have fellowship with sinners or tax collectors. In fact, they even accused Jesus himself of being demon-possessed as he broke the Sabbath laws. Their judgment of Jesus was based on their traditions of men that had been handed down from one leader to the next. It wasn't based on the word of God. The traditions of men had seeped in and become more powerful than God's word. They'd gotten off track, if you will. Jesus was trying to educate them. In all of his contacts with them, he's trying to teach them. He wants to instruct them, but they're not interested. They're only interested in their history or their routine or their religion. Instead, they tried to entrap Jesus, but their efforts were futile. Jesus always seemed to be a step ahead. He always referred back to the Old Testament scriptures. And Matthew does a great job of pointing that out to us. Matthew is always going back and quoting Old Testament prophets and scriptures and, and the, that, that Christ is using to justify who he is. Jesus wasn't into keeping their traditions, but he was into upholding the truths of God's word and accomplishing his mission here on earth, which would ultimately find him at the cross. Now tonight... We come to yet another confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees. It's getting kind of entertaining, don't you think? I like to watch it. And although this confrontation is unsolicited by the Pharisees, it will be yet another attempt by Jesus to teach and to instruct those, the Pharisees. However, once again, they are not willing to be taught. They were unteachable people. Look with me at chapter 12 of Matthew, verse 22. Then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind and mute. That means he couldn't speak. And he healed him, so that the blind and the mute man both spoke and saw. And the multitudes were amazed and said, Could this be the son of David? Now when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Now I can't help but wonder, and this certainly isn't factual, but who brought this blind, mute, and demon-possessed man to Jesus? Could it have been another trap from the Pharisees? 
Could that it's been somebody they're trying to set up? Is it set up by them? I wonder if they had tried to deliver this man themselves and failed. Maybe they had just tried to deliver this man from the demon, and they couldn't, so they figured, we're going to put him in front of Jesus. We'll prove we couldn't do it. He can't do it either. Now, we don't know the answer to that question, but I can't help but wonder, is that possible? You see, there was a common belief in that day that if you wanted to cast a demon out of somebody, and this was common knowledge then, you had to get the demon to say his name, and then you could cast the demon out. The problem with this guy He was mute. He didn't speak. He was deaf. Therefore, this would be a demon that they said could never be cast out because you can't get him to speak because the man doesn't speak. So this is an impossible situation. I wonder if the Pharisees are up to something here. Again, we don't know for sure. But since this man was mute, he couldn't speak. In their eyes, there was no chance of the demon ever being cast out. Well, if the Pharisees aren't the ones who brought this man to Jesus, I'm sure they're standing by waiting to see what happens. I'm sure they're watching with their eagle eyes trying to determine, is this another opportunity where he's going to seemingly break the law? You see, the scriptures don't tell us exactly how he did it. They don't even tell us exactly what he said. But it leads us to believe in a moment, this man both spoke and he saw. His eyes were opened and he spoke and the demon was cast out. No magic formula, no pixie dust, no prayer circle, no, no nothing. Jesus just, and I'm going to say gave the word because we don't know exactly what he said or what he did or how the procedure went. But one moment, he's deaf, he's mute, and he's demon-possessed. The next moment, his bondage is gone. He's set free, he's now seeing, and now speaking. The multitudes tells us they were amazed. They've never seen this before. This is unbelievable. Can you imagine seeing something like that? Perhaps they knew this guy because it was a smaller area. It's, it's quite possible they would have known who this, oh, we know that guy. Oh, no, 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 forget about Billy Bob or whatever. We'll just call him whoever you want. Forget about that person. There's no way. And all of a sudden, in a moment, he's speaking. He's seeing. He's no longer possessed. He's in his right mind, so to speak. All in a moment. And the crowds are amazed. And the word amazed, it means to cause someone to be so astounded, they are practically overwhelmed. It literally means beside yourself. It's like mouths open, jaws on the floor, knock your socks off, whatever you want to put it. They're like, whoa. You can just hear the crowd gasping as they're watching this take place. They're just blown away. And I can hear the whispering. Hey, did you just see that? What just happened? Did you just see what, we know that guy. Did you just see what happened? How did this happen? What's going on? Maybe this really is the son of David. Maybe this really is the Messiah. Maybe he really, maybe he really is. (coughs) In my mind, the Pharisees are standing by listening to this. Uh Uh-oh, now what are we going to do? They're saying this could be the Messiah. You see, the Pharisees, they're faced with a real problem here, aren't they? They've got a big problem. They've got a major problem. They couldn't deny what just happened. They couldn't say it was fake. They couldn't say, well, the guy wasn't demon-possessed because everybody probably knew it. They couldn't say the guy wasn't really blind and mute. Everybody probably knew it. Everyone witnessed the power. They witnessed the change in this man's life. They couldn't deny that something supernatural took place. But yet they had to deal with it. Because in their mind, he's not the Messiah, so we have to ascribe that power to somewhere else. Do you realize literally, in this one act, 
Jesus demonstrated his power over both physical illness and the demonic realm. In this one moment, he demonstrated how much power he really has through the Holy Spirit, both over disease and over the demonic realm. And you worry if he can help you. And you worry if he has enough power to help you over get through, get through your tough day tomorrow, or your tough week, or your tough situation, or your difficulty. And yet here on full display is his power, and the people are going, this might be the son of David. This might be the Messiah. You see, his supernatural powers couldn't be questioned after that, could they? It was clear. There was no, there was no did he really do this? The, the common people couldn't question it. And also, more importantly, the Pharisees standing by, they couldn't question it either. What are we going to do about it? So what they had to do, they had to explain it away. They had to, all right, we've got, we've got to figure it out. We're going to explain it away. So just picture this. This is taking place. They bring up this man to Jesus, and, and he, he can't see, and he's, he's, he's deaf, and he's got a demon, so who knows how he's acting or what's going on. He's, they bring him up to Jesus. Jesus casts out the demon. All of a sudden, he can see. All of a sudden, he's perfectly normal. The crowd starts murmuring, could this be the Messiah? The Pharisees hear it there in verse 25. It says, now when the Pharisees heard it, they said, this fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. I anticipate the Pharisees are in a little bit of a panic right now because of what display of power was just put on before all the people. They're ascribing this power to the Messiah. They've, they've got a situation. What are they going to do? We can't have the people believing this is the son of David. We can't have the people believing this is the Messiah. Yet they're unable to deny the power that was demonstrated it was obviously supernatural, so what do they do? They, they, they say it's, he's doing it with the power from Beelzebub. Beelzebub. Beelzebub was a Philistine god. Literally, it means Lord of the Flies. It's another word for Satan. They're saying, no, no, Jesus is only casting out demons by the power of Satan. That's their answer. We can't, describe, we can't deny that something supernatural is happening, but let me tell you how it's happening. Satan's doing it. Satan's doing it, not, not, not God. Satan, this has nothing to do with God, has everything to do with Satan. You see, they only had two choices. It was either God or Satan, they had to pick one or the other. If they picked God, then they're, they're, they're automatically wrong in what they're doing. They, if they, so they, they, Satan did it, they picked Satan. Now, I believe at this point, Jesus wants to teach them. I don't think he set out to have an interaction with them where he makes them look foolish, although I would have if I were Sam, but that would probably be a little bit arrogant on me. But I don't think that was his heart. I think he really had a desire to instruct them and to teach them. Let me share with you the truth. What you say doesn't make any sense. He wants to teach them. And then notice he's going to discern their thoughts, but he wants to point out their, their poor logic, if you will. Look there at verse 25. He says, but Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons or your followers cast them out? Therefore, they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. 
Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? And then he will plunder his house. He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. Again, notice it says there, Jesus knew their thoughts. In other words, the Pharisees were probably speaking to the people in the crowd out of earshot from Jesus. But yet he discerned their thoughts. He knew their thoughts. And then he addresses what they're thinking. Whoa, how cool is that? He doesn't even have, you don't even have to say it. They, were, they weren't willing to confront Jesus publicly. They'd already done that before. It didn't turn out too well for them. So they're just going to talk to everybody else. It's like they're defending their position. But Jesus understands what they're thinking. And he's going to confront them publicly about their thoughts. Consider that for a moment. When you wake up tomorrow morning, you're going to do your devotions. And Jesus already knows your thoughts. He already knows your day. He already knows where you need to go in the Bible. He already knows what you need to hear. And he's going to minister to you what you need to hear. Just like he's about to tell them what they need to hear. So often we don't want to listen, which is going to be their case. Again, I don't think Jesus is being mean. I really believe that he wanted to teach them the truth. You see, he wanted their heart to change. Mark tells us that Jesus called the Pharisees to himself and he began to speak to them in parables. In other words, come on over here, guys. I want to share with you. And going forward in chapter 13, we're going to start to see parables unfolding. He wants to teach them. He wants to show them. But you know what their problem was? They were unteachable. They didn't want to be taught. They didn't want to search out and know the truth. They wanted to hold what truth, what they believed to be truth, not interested in the real truth. So much so that the Son of God, the Messiah, is right before them, and they're denying his power. They're witnessing his power. They're seeing demons cast out. They're seeing healings take place. Nah, he's doing it by the power of Satan. They don't really want to be taught. They're unteachable. Can you be unteachable sometimes? I realize I can be. Sometimes I think I know it all. So do you. And we think we know it all. We've got that down. Can I encourage you that when you go to the Word of God, whether it be tomorrow morning in your devotion, whether it be sitting here for the rest of this message tonight, whatever it is, will you consider yourself, ask the Lord, make yourself teachable. Lord, teach me. Instruct me in your ways. Lord, if I'm off in my thinking, I've said it many times, if what I teach, if what I hold as doctrine and truth is wrong, and someone can say to me, what you believe is wrong based on the scriptures, not on some book some guy wrote about the scriptures, based on the scriptures, I'll change what I believe in a heartbeat. I can honestly tell you that if someone is somehow, in, I, I, if something in the scriptures showed me that Mormonism was correct, I'd become a Mormon. But what I do is I see just the opposite when I study the scriptures. I see that that's a cult. I see that's not following the scriptures. Because it's my desire to know the truth. And I hope that my heart, and I hope that your heart is the same way, that I want to be teachable. I don't care if I've believed it my whole life. If it's wrong, I just want to know the truth. I just want to understand the truth. And I'm perfectly okay with saying, I don't know. I don't know. I come to things in Scripture all the time and go, I don't know. You'll hear me tell you guys, some people believe this, some people believe that. Here's what I believe and why. But the truth is, I don't know. You can pick what you want. You know? And that's the way that I approach them. The Pharisees weren't like that. What they had was the truth, and their truth was based on the traditions of men and not, it was formed around the word of God, but it was no longer holding true to the word of God. It was based on what the rabbi had passed down to rabbi and what had been passed down to rabbi as opposed to what God's word said. 
There in verse 25, Jesus points out the obvious and he tells them just how absurd their accusation really is. He says, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. In other words, he's saying, listen guys, what you say makes no sense. There's no logic in this argument. Why would Satan cast out his own demons? What would be the sense in that? Oh, sure, one demon might yield or give way to another for a greater advantage. But let me ask you this. How would Satan benefit from this man being set free? He wouldn't. Who's the one that benefits from this man being healed and this man being set free? The man benefits, but also the Lord benefits because his power is being sent out. It's being shown. It's on display. The people benefit because they get to see the power of the Messiah on full display. How does Satan benefit from this? He doesn't. That's the obvious. It, wouldn't, it, it doesn't make any sense. But yet, his power is on full display. Now notice, Jesus said nothing divided can stand. A divided kingdom or a nation, it'll fall. A divided marriage, it will fail. A divided family will be torn apart. A divided house will not remain. Jesus goes on to say there in verse 26, as he proves his point, if Satan casts out Satan, if that's true, if Satan's casting out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? The logical answer is it won't. He can't. It doesn't work that way. It can't. Even a divided spiritual kingdom will fall. Now, if you're like me, here in 2018, what about our country? Aren't we kind of divided sometimes? Well, that's not what I'm here to teach about. I'll let your mind go play there by itself some other time. But what we do know is a divided kingdom or a divided nation will not stand. And that doesn't exclude the United States of America. It's very, very clear. Jesus is giving us this information so that we can not only use it and apply it then, but it can be applied to us. And next, in verse 27, Jesus will point out their double standard. It says this, If I cast out demons by Beelzebub, let's just say I do. If I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. You see, the Pharisees had followers. They would call them sons, the people that were being, under, being taught underneath them. If they're able to cast out demons and they ascribe their power to cast out a demon to God, that's, that's what they're doing. How come when the one who is able to cast out every demon, including the ones that they couldn't, and heal every disease, including the fact that they couldn't, how come when the one that comes along that's able to do this they ascribe his power to Satan. In other words, your sons can cast out some demons if they can get them to say their name. But yet I come along and I can cast out every demon. I can heal every illness. And yet you say my power is from Satan. Listen to what one author wrote. He wrote it this way. He said, the Pharisee's response reflects the basic response of every person who intentionally rejects Jesus Christ. They did not reject him for lack of evidence, but because they were biased against him. Their own deeds were evil, and they could not handle the intimidating reality of Jesus' righteousness. They were children of darkness and could not tolerate his life, his, I'm sorry, his light. They were not looking for truth, but for ways to justify their own wickedness 
and, destroy, and, and ways to destroy anyone who dared to expose them. It wasn't about truth. It was about me and my kingdom. It was about my religion. And if you're going to come against it, I'm going to destroy you. Isn't that terrible? They're religious leaders. And we know what they would eventually do. There to drive his point home further, Jesus says, let's ask your sons. You go get your, you go get your guys that cast out demons. Ask them, by what power do you cast out demons? If they said Satan, they would condemn themselves and the religion of the, the Pharisees. Do you, what do you mean by Satan? That's not it. But if they say God's power, then they're sort of undercutting Jesus, their accusation against Jesus. How come God's power could make the demon that says his name gone, but you're saying God's power can't do what Jesus is doing? You see, they're kind of undercutting themselves there. Jesus essentially told them, he said, your accusations are absurd. Your logic doesn't make any sense. He pointed to the truth that a divided house can't stand. And finally, he said, let's ask your sons, the ones that exercise, by what power they cast out demons. So, if Jesus did cast out demons by Satan, how would this make any sense? The house, Satan's house would then be divided. But Jesus doesn't cast out demons by Satan. He told us how he did it, didn't he? He made it very clear. How does it say he does it? By the Spirit of God. By the Spirit of God. By the Spirit of God. Look at verse 28. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? And he will plunder his house. When Jesus casts out a demon, when he does that, he's putting on display his superiority over the satanic kingdom, over the kingdom of Satan. I am superior. They have to do what I say. You see, the exorcist sons of the Pharisees didn't have that luxury. They didn't have to do what they said. Satan here is the strong man, but Jesus is stronger still. How many of you tonight, if someone breaks into your house, you're going to let them come on in and take whatever they want? You go, that'd be foolish. What if they're stronger than you? What if they have a gun? What if they have more power than you? What if they exercise more influence than you can than meet? Then you're going to have to give way. You have to let them do it. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is stronger than Satan, therefore he has to give way. He has to go. It's not, a, it's not that Satan and Jesus are equal. Don't make that mistake. Some people believe that, that they're, they're brothers, as, as some would teach. That's not true. Satan is created being. Jesus is, is, is God. He's, he has power over Satan. Satan is under his authority. He has to do what he says. Satan would not let himself be bound and cast out unless there was a stronger one at work. The demon's not going to leave unless he has to. And in this case, and in every case, when they're facing Christ, the Messiah, they have to come under his authority. It's blowing the mind of the Pharisees. But I want you to notice again the power that Jesus utilized to cast out the demons. I cast out demons by the Spirit of God. By the Spirit of God. Although it's phrased there as an if statement, to those who believe, it's a declaration of truth. The Spirit of God is the power that Jesus used to heal 
those that were ill. It's the power that he used to exercise the demons. It's the same Holy Spirit that we have available to us today. It's exactly the same, the same Spirit of God. Hmm. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? And then he will plunder his house. The Spirit of God is the power. Satan is the strong man. But there is one stronger still, and that's Christ. Look at verse 30. He who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters abroad. Essentially, Jesus at this point, he forces the Pharisees to pick a side. You're either with me or you're against me. There's no neutral ground here. There's no, I want to think about it. You're either for me or you're against me. You're either with me or there's only two possibilities in this relationship. There's only two choices. Isn't that true of today? Someone's either belongs to Christ or they don't belong to Christ. There's no, well, I'm a good person or I'm still thinking about it. That's fine. You can think all you want. You have that choice, but you do not belong to Christ while you're thinking until you give your life to Christ. That's just the way that it goes. There's only two possible relationships to Jesus Christ and therefore to God because he is the only way to the Father. So today, tonight, all across the entire world, there's only two positions somebody can be in. They either belong to Christ or they don't. That's it. There's no middle ground. There's no neutral ground. And we can rationalize that and justify that in our heads any way we want. It is both spiritually and rationally impossible to look at Jesus and just say, oh, he's a good man. Oh, he was a good teacher. He was a good man of God, but nothing more. That, that absolutely makes no sense. That there's, there's, that, that is, you cannot read the New Testament, the red letters, and come to that conclusion. You, you, can't do, you can't just say, oh, he's just a good person. Because when you read what he says about himself, you're going to find that only that he's going to claim to be God. And only God has the right to claim for himself the honor and authority that Jesus claimed upon himself. You can't just go, he was a good person. Only God has the power over disease, sin, demons, Satan, and death that Jesus claimed and displayed throughout the entire New Testament. So you can't look and just go, he's a good person. Either he was who he claimed to be, which is God, the Son of God, God in the flesh, or he was an absolute lunatic. One of the two. Those are the only two logical positions you can hold on Jesus. But yet some people want to diminish him to a prophet. Just a prophet or a good person like many others. No, no. You can't study the life of Christ and logically come to that conclusion. It doesn't make any sense. Either he was who he claimed to be or he was a complete lunatic. There's no, there's no middle ground there. And that's exactly what he's saying. And since there are only two sides, look what he says to the Pharisees next. There in verse 31, he says, Therefore, I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Few, if any, passages of Scripture have been misunderstood more than these two verses. It's always misunderstood. It's always misquoted. It's always misapplied. 
It's very important that we understand them correctly and contextually in what we're talking about here. Some people have worried that by using the Lord's name in vain, but they said a word long ago, they feel, now my sins can't be forgiven. I've committed the unpardonable sin. It's not true, but let's look at this thing in context. How was Jesus casting out demons? By the Spirit of God, right? The Spirit of God. He now warns them about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. In verse 31, it says, Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men. And although blasphemy is a form of sin, in this passage they're treated separately, blasphemy represents uh, the most extreme form of sin. Sin refers to the full, you know, unmoral, ungodly thoughts, actions, all that kind of stuff. Blasphemy, it refers to, represents the most extreme forms of sin. Uh, it's, it's a conscious denouncing or rejection of what God, of who God is. And there's a display right in front of you. The Old Testament for penalty for blasphemy. You know what it was? Death by stoning. In the book of Revelation, it tells us that in the last days, blasphemy will be an outstanding characteristic of those who oppose God. It's going to be happening in the last days in the book of Revelation. Well, I think we can say it's happening today, don't you? We're not as far as it's going to get, but we can certainly see there's people, especially in our country, that was once believed to be a Christian nation. You can see that we're divided. We're getting further and further apart from that. And Jesus says blasphemy can be forgiven just like any other sin, with one exception. There's one exception there. Jesus points it out here in verse 32. Whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. If you speak a word against the Son of Man, speak against Jesus, it can be forgiven. Paul called himself a former blasphemer against God. Peter blasphemed when he cursed and denied Jesus. They were both forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it says it will not be forgiven him. So exactly what does that mean? What does that really look like? And i got to tell you, it's going to look a little different in their life in the context as it's going to look in our life. Speaking, against, speaking blasphemy or speaking against the Holy Spirit is not just unbelief, but it's an adamant and a determined unbelief. It's, it's adamant, it's determined. It's even after witnessing the power of Christ. Even after witnessing the power of God, even after having all the necessary evidence to believe, yet you still say, I don't believe. All laid out for you. It's refusing to believe what the Spirit says as, it's being, as, as the power is being demonstrated before your very eyes. Think back to the Pharisees. What was just demonstrated before their very eyes? What did Jesus just do? He cast out a demon. He healed the, the, the blind man and the mute man. He made him perfectly normal. That kind of power. Do, do we see that happening every day? Has anybody ever seen anything like that happening? Now, there's some crazy people out there that think it's happening, and Jesus still could do that today if he chooses, but I don't believe one man has the power to do that because Jesus held that power because it was a demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, it's a determined rejection of Jesus as the Messiah even though he's done all the things you would expect the Messiah to do. It discards every piece of evidence and argument in your own life. It's as though you're seeking, seeing the truth, and then you knowingly reject Christ, knowingly say, no thank you. You see, it demonstrates an absolute and permanent refusal to believe. It's per blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is permanent. 
It's, it, it's, it's, it's something that happens, it, it, it can't be changed, well, and it will eventually result in the loss of the opportunity to believe or to ever be forgiven. It goes no further, either in this age or the age to come. It, 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 it's, it's permanent. Those who speak against the Holy Spirit, the Pharisees here, those who saw his divine power working in and through Jesus, they were witnesses to it, but they willfully refused to accept the implications of that revelation. And in some cases, they even said that power is not from God, but it's from Satan. Do you see the difference there? Many people heard Jesus teach. They witnessed the healings. They observed demons being cast out. Some followed, but some still refused to believe. Instead, they accused him of being an agent of Satan. They called him deceitful, calling him a liar, and even suggested that he himself was demon-possessed. They completely rejected the work of the Holy Spirit on the life of Christ. Completely ignored it. In the face of every possible piece of evidence that Jesus was the Messiah, what more could he have done to convince them? And they're going to ask for a sign in a moment. We'll, we won't see that tonight. We'll see that next week. Well, give us a sign. What more signs do you need? Look what I just did. What more do you need from me? In the face of all the evidence, essentially with his deity on full display, they said, no, no, you're not the Messiah. You're an agent of Satan. And it came to a place, comes to a place, it could come to a place. What more could God do to reveal himself to you, to mankind? What more could he have done? What else? What, is there one more thing that Jesus could have done? I suggest there's not. He did everything to reveal himself as the Messiah. And they rejected him. They said, no, thank you. They blasphemed the Holy Spirit and they rejected his testimony. You see, in that day, the Pharisees, they were watching the Holy Spirit on the life of Christ and they rejected it and they, and they, and they committed that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. We don't have that luxury today, do we? I wish we could see Christ walking among us. I wish we could see this type of healing taking place. I wish we could have this kind of interaction with him where we could go to the Sea of Galilee and, and sit down and have a chat with him and have him teach us for a few hours. That would be wonderful, but we don't have that. So is it still possible today for us to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? You betcha. In John 15, it tells us the main ministry of the Holy Spirit, who's our helper, it tells us his ministry is to testify of Jesus. The Holy Spirit is testifying of Christ as Jesus worked miracles in the power of the Spirit, as he cast out demons in the power of the Spirit, the work of the Spirit is on the life of Christ, and today the Holy Spirit is testifying of who he is. You have a choice. You can be with him, or you can be against him. It's just like it was back then. To reject Jesus from a distance, to go, oh yeah, that's, 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 not, that's, not, that's not good. But to reject Jesus with the visible testimony of the Holy Spirit is fatal. To reject what Christ is doing, to reject Christ on all of the information we have available to us today. How many sermons have you sat through? How many times have we heard the Bible taught? How many pastors have put us to sleep? How much have we heard as we sat through churches, some of us for our whole lives, and we still can say, nah, I don't believe that. Not you guys, somebody else. I'm sure this will go out on the radio, they can hear it. But someone would still say, no, nah, I still don't believe that Jesus has the power to do that in my life. Can I assure you that he does? He absolutely does. The eternal consequences 
of this sin, it forces us to take it seriously, doesn't it? It forces us to look at it seriously. How can we know if we've, in fact, blasphemed the Holy Spirit? What, what if I've done it, Rob? What if I, how about, is there someone sitting here that's done it? Listen, if you desire to know Jesus, if you, if you have an inclination, if you, if you want to know, if you're wondering, if you if you're just want some more information, you haven't done it. You still have an indication. You're, you're still seeking. You're still searching. You haven't reached that point where you've had everything revealed to you. But we're, tell, we're told there'll be a day when that happens. Adam Clark explained it this way. He said, many sincere people have been grievously troubled with apprehensions that they had committed the unpardonable sin. But let it be observed that no man who believes, the divine, believes in the divine mission of Jesus Christ can ever commit this sin. Therefore, let no man's heart fail of it from now and forever. Amen. In other words, you, you don't blaspheme the Holy Spirit by saying a bad word. You don't even blaspheme the Holy Spirit by saying a bad sentence. You, there's not one little sentence that you can say. It's not wrapped up in words. Sometimes people will intentionally say words that they believe will, 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 will be blasphemy to the Holy Spirit. And they say, look, nothing happened. Look, look nothing, nothing happened to me. They'll boast. Nothing, nothing took place. They think it's no big deal to joke with eternity. But listen carefully, true blasphemy against the Spirit is more than a formula of words. It's a decision made on your life. It's not just words coming out of your mouth. It is a settled disposition of life that rejects the testimony of the Holy Spirit about Jesus Christ. It's rejecting the fact that he went to the cross, he died for your sins, they were paid for, and you received that forgiveness because of what he accomplished on your behalf, and now you are seen as righteous by God. When you reject that, you're blasphemy. You're rejecting the testimony of the Holy Spirit. Listen carefully. I heard this story. I read this story. I thought it made a good point. You see, we all have a point where throughout life, information about God keeps coming in. It keeps coming in. We keep learning. We keep learning. And, and, and sometimes we all know people who are unbelievers who the more that we minister to them, the more we share with them, they just, no, 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 no. But there's still more information to come. But there's a point that comes in a person's life where that's it. Pharaoh hardened his heart, and he hardened his heart, and he hardened his heart. And eventually, what does it tell us? That God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God stamped Pharaoh's decision and said, fine, you want a hard heart? I'm going to give you a hard heart. And there was no turning back from that. Listen to this story I read. During World War II, an American naval force in the North Atlantic was engaged in a heavy battle with enemy ships and submarines on an exceptionally dark night. Six planes took off from the carrier to search out those targets. But while they were in the air, a total blackout was ordered for the carrier in order to protect it from the attack. Without lights on the carrier's deck, the six planes could not possibly land. And they made a radio request for the lights to be turned on just long enough so that we could come in and land. But because the entire carrier, with its several thousand men, as well as all the other planes and equipment, would have been put in jeopardy, no lights were permitted. When six planes ran out of fuel, they had to ditch in the freezing waters, and all the crew members of those planes perished into eternity. There comes a time where God turns out the lights, where he says that's it, where there's no further opportunity for salvation. It's forever gone. That's why Paul told the Corinthians, 
Now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. For those of us that have salvation, we need to see this as a motivator because we all have loved ones that don't know the Lord. We all have people in our lives that we care about deeply that don't know Christ. We don't know when the lights get turned out. We don't know when that moment is. Our responsibility is just to share the truth with them over and over and over and over again. Share it with your life. Share it with your words. Minister to them. Pray for them. Hope they receive that truth because there's coming a day in everybody's life where that light is turned out and there's no more opportunity to receive the Lord. And I don't know about you, but that saddens my heart. Because like you, I have people, family and friends, that I'm not sure if they know the Lord. And maybe even some I know for a fact they don't know the Lord. And I don't know when that will happen. I don't know when that moment will be cut off. So in the meantime, I pray. Lord, will you give us the opportunity? Will you, will you help us share the truth when we can? And then as you pray for that and you ask that, you know what happens? They'll start to open those doors sometimes. Because you have to remember, he cares about them more than you care about them. As hard as that is for us to understand, he cares about your loved ones more than you care about your loved ones. But there comes a point where we have to put them in his hands. Say, Lord, they belong to you. I can only do what you allow me to do. You see, when it comes to this blaspheming of the Holy Spirit, people always wonder, have I committed it? Did I do it when I was younger? I did some really bad things. Listen, if you're following the Lord today, you didn't do it. You're not there. If you're rejecting what Christ is doing, there's still a chance to turn. You can still turn from that. It it hasn't reached that point of finality where where there's no more left. There's still a chance. How would somebody do that? How do you turn? What does that look like when someone says, I'm going to change? It's real simple. It's what we as a Christian call getting saved. It's I give my life to Christ. Lord, forgive me for my sins. I believe he died on the cross. You believe and he, that he rose from the dead to prove that that sacrifice was accepted. And the moment that happens, do you remember when that happened in your life? Can you go back and go, I realize I've been forgiven and all of my problems, all my guilt, all my shame, everything I've done wrong, the Lord's forgiven me. Is that not such a freeing feeling? That is unbelievable. Because sometimes we can go, I've done some really bad things. Yeah, but you're forgiven. You're forgiven. Do you realize his grace goes beyond what you can comprehend? I had somebody ask me recently. They said to me, you mean to tell me that somebody could do such heinous things as murder and molesting children and do all of these things and in the very last moment of their life, God would forgive them? Is that, is that, is that, is that, is that just? Is that, is that right? That somebody could be that kind of person and then a week before they die, believe on Jesus and everything changes? My answer was, I don't understand it either. But here's what I know. If their heart truly is right with God, the answer to that question is yes. All of that can be forgiven. But I can't understand how that can be forgiven. I understand what accomplished the forgiveness. But when I look at somebody, if you've hurt my loved one, I would have difficulty with that. I I can understand that. And hopefully you can too. But the point is, God's forgiveness and his grace goes way beyond what we can comprehend or way beyond what we can even explain. And that's what people need to hear. 
We need to make sure that we're ministering to those in our life that don't know the Lord. Because coming soon, maybe, the lights will be turned out. And there'll be no more opportunity. So I would encourage you that if you have a loved one, maybe it's time to talk to him about Christ. Let's pray. Father, as we study your word tonight, we see the Pharisees. Their hearts were not interested in truth, in knowing who you are. They were just interested in keeping up their religion. And they saw the very Messiah that was sent to save them as a, as a competitor, as someone who would turn the people away from them. And Lord, they took, they watched as your spirit upon Christ was on full display and they rejected it. They blasphemed it. They spoke against what you were doing. And their fate was sealed. Lord, I just pray that for everybody in this room, we would have a relationship with you. We would be reminded of how great you are. We would be reminded of how much that you love us and how much that you care for us. If we've been in a position where we've been blaspheming the Holy Spirit, rejecting the work of Christ, may that change. May we come to a place of repentance and accepting of the work of Christ as the Holy Spirit testifies of who Jesus is in our life. May we not be unteachable, but may we be teachable and pliable as you work in and through us. In Jesus' name, amen.